Welcome to the Guide Sessions, a podcast where we talk about stories of adventure as told by the guides who experience them. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you hear, feel free to rate and subscribe. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about tags and applications. Most dates' applications uh, have already kind of opened and closed. There's some that are still open. Uh, however, if you happen to not draw a tag, there's still options out there. Okay, You can contact me at the Guide Sessions Consultant. You can come through the website, theguidesessions.com, or you can look me right up on Instagram at the Guide Sessions. Uh, shoot me a message. Be like, hey, I'm looking to do a hunt somewhere, and I'll help you figure it out. I've got some outfitters that I'm working with in different states, even Africa, even some up in Canada. So I'm pretty sure I can find you a place to hunt, uh, even with over-counter elk, you know, a, a cow tag. I can get you hooked up with an outfitter if you want to go get some elk meat. All right, there's opportunities out there if you don't if you don't get a tag, go get experience, go get reps. If you've never hunted elk, there's nothing wrong with hunting a cow because you're in the elk woods. So that actually, when you finally get that opportunity to draw that bull tag of wherever you're drawing or wherever you're applying, you're going to have experience and reps in the elk woods. You're going to see how they act. You're going to see how they move. You're going to be in that environment that they're in. So you're going to learn how to prepare yourself for that moment that maybe perhaps a once in a lifetime tag that you've been waiting 15, 20 years for. So if you've never been on a trip or something like that, there's opportunities there. So reach out, contact me. I'd love to help you out. Also, don't forget about the Guide Sessions Media Services where we offer a wide variety of photography and videography services. So you could be an outfitter looking for pictures and photos, um, videos for your website, or even a small business and you're trying to improve website and improve content, things for social media, reach out. I'd love to help you. Again, you can go to the website at theguidesessions.com or look me up on Instagram at theguidesessions. Hey guys, as you're probably aware, most of my life evolves around the outdoors, whether it be guiding hunts or filming content or just hunting and fishing for myself. For a while now, I have actually struggled with my weight. I was hauling around about 40 plus pounds that I didn't need, and it was really starting to become a burden to me physically, both in the woods as well in the gym. If you have been following me on social media, you will have noticed that I have actually found a nutrition program that has not only perfectly fit my hectic schedule of not only my daily job, but all the work I do outside of that in the hunting industry. It also has got me healthy, got that weight off, and it did it really quickly. I'm really excited about it and would love to share more information with you, but I don't want to delay this podcast any further. So if you'd like to learn more, shoot me a message or an email. What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning into this episode. Hopefully everyone had a great 4th of July holiday. The girls and I really didn't do anything special other than, you know, the standard fireworks, which uh, which was fine by me. I didn't need anything big, big eventful, big parties or nothing. So it was a perfect weekend for me and the girls. This is whitetail antler growing season. It's off to a great start. I know I've been seeing some good bucks in, in my area. Hopefully you guys have been seeing some others in yours. Uh, as always, every year when this happens is you're starting to take inventory, trying to figure out, okay, which bucks survive, which bucks didn't, how big are they going to get, am I going to change stands, am I moving this stand here, am I moving this stand there, am I going to keep it where I'm at, am I going to trim this new shooting lane out, am I not? There's so many things to sit there and decide and go through. And if you're like me, you're going to change your plan a thousand times between now and the season. So all I can say is hopefully you can get your cameras out there. Hopefully you're finding big bucks to go hunt. And the season's going to be here before we know it. Hopefully uh, everybody's out there shooting their bows. I'm talking to myself on this one because I know I need to get out and practice more. So it's never too early to do that. So get, be ready, get ready, and shoot straight. Anyway. For today's show, in this episode, we are heading north, well, north for me anyway, up to the Empire State, up in New York. 
Um, we're talking with Steve Bland of Leather Stocking Guide Service. I was up there for a weekend with my daughter turkey hunting in the spring. Uh, you, if you've listened to previous episodes, you probably heard some of the tales about the those turkey hunts and how they and how it all worked out. But Steve was our guide. He's the one that kind of helped us out through the property, helped us try and find birds. It was rough. I ain't going to lie. Um, but Steve did a great job. Loved hanging out with him for the weekends. And the cool thing about it is Steve and I really hit it off because we actually both got our start in the guide industry by handling bird dogs. Yeah. Well, he still handles bird dogs. And actually, I just now own a bird dog myself and I'm getting back into it. So it's funny how circles come around. And but not only that, with with bird dogs, Steve, obviously, he guides turkeys. He also guides some other game. He's a huge Western game hunter. Uh, he's got a great story that he's going to tell in his podcast about a mountain goat hunt that he was on. So make sure you stick around for that. Other things that we're going to talk about in this podcast are obviously bird dogs, the importance of field safety, a little bit of dog training basics, um, and of course, turkey hunting. Why not? And uh, his advice about shooting off both shoulders is pretty cool, as well as culling turkeys. So we've got all this, much more. This is a great conversation. It's Steve Bland. Talk with me on the Guide Sessions Podcast. All right. Okay. We are live. And today on the show, we've got Steve Bland with Leather Stocking Guide Service up in New York. Steve and I had the, uh, I want to say the experience of taking my daughter out for her first turkey this morning in New York. We didn't quite make it happen because she decided not to shoot at Jake, but uh, we got tomorrow coming up and Steve's got a plan for it. In terms of, I wanted to kind of sit down and do a quick podcast here of kind of like stories from Turkey Camp. We have Steve, maybe some other guests might want to come in here. I don't know. People are being shy, but we got to ask them too. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. But Steve's been uh, guiding for a long time and here in New York and also up in his home state in Vermont. So I just kind of want to have him hop on here and tell a few quick stories. So, so Steve, welcome okay. to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how did... How did I guess the the basic question I always start off with is how did you start guiding? Like what got you into it? Well, my actual guiding started in Vermont at Peaceable Hill, which is a pheasant preserve in Shoreham. And it's a long story that I can make short, but I have uh, I've always had Brittany spaniels uh, most of my life, and about twenty years ago, I got a new pup. And about six months later, I got another new pup, and I wanted to train those dogs. And when we were teenagers growing up in Vermont, we used to go to Rutland behind Kmart, as I recall, and we had a steel cage that we made out of chicken wire. We'd put some bird seed under it, stick in a string, and we'd trap pigeons. And that's how we would work our dogs. Well, you get to be a little bit older, and that's not so cool, so... Uh, one day I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, geez, I know a guy up in Shoreham who's raising pheasants, so we could probably buy some pheasants. I'm thinking, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So uh, that's what we did. We went up to Peaceable Hill, bought some birds, brought them back to my property, and worked the dogs, let them go. And, you know, six or eight pheasants doesn't take very long. And then I needed some more, and I went back to Peaceable Hill, and uh, the owner, Glenn Simone said, geez, I can sell you more pheasants, but I'm actually just getting going here with, with the hunting preserves, so maybe you want to work up here. <laughs> and my response right off the bat was, no, I don't want to work and be a guide because then I won't be hunting. He says, well, he goes, once you start working up here, he says, you'll quickly forget about the hunting part because you're going to like being a guide so much. So, all right. I will give that a try, and he was right. So that's when I started, and I'm still up there. It's about five dogs into it now because it's been 20 years. Uh, but that that was the start for me, and and I'm still there, and it's it's a wonderful place. Yeah, it's funny because like we were talking pre-podcast here about how that's how I got my starting guiding is is running bird dogs on that's a preserve. Right. And, yeah, you said that. And uh, it's funny how like you can very quickly, like you said, you get, you get used to guiding and not so much hunting. Like you're like, Oh, if I'm guiding all the time, I'm not going to get a ton as much, but you, you, 
as as you found out, you very quickly realize that it's just as much fun, if not more fun, to to work the dog. And yeah, I I think I get more excited when the guys and or women right. get their shots and get their birds uh, than I do myself. Certainly at this point, that's the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fell right into it. And as a dog owner, a bird dog owner, there's just no substitute to me anyway of taking my dogs out and working them and just letting them have fun so. right yeah and that's the cool thing about yeah. you know you talk to some people who really are, are, are into bird hunting and running dogs that especially when you got dogs are you britney's pointers or flushers i didn't I britney's or pointers okay yeah. so uh, with pointing dogs like once you stop like falling in love with watching them dogs work and then just lock up on point like that's when that's when it's over like don't do it anymore yeah it's like who cares if you shoot the bird my dog did what he's supposed to do (laughs) and so we'll just but yeah i I just love it when they do that Uh, and most of the time the people that you're hunting with you know like it too i mean they they usually comment more on the dogs and on their shooting or on my handling yeah or anything else they just like watching the dogs and so do i so it turns into a dog show and yeah you you know a lot of times you think i'm doing a horrible job guiding but then the dog's doing such a good job making you look good yeah and it's definitely amazing on how much more people will uh um enjoy just watching the dogs work yeah or i i know the dogs are doing a bad job Mm -hmm. for whatever the reason uh, but the guys don't to them, yeah. it's just way cool because this dog points birds, and they haven't seen a dog that'll just lock up on a scent mm-hmm. and point a bird. And so they, you know, everybody just has fun. Yeah, that's, that's the name of the game: being safe and having fun. Yeah. So and sometimes we kill birds. <laughs> sometimes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they get away because uh, you, and that's like true with most guiding is that you can you can lead the bird to the or leave the dog to the bird, and the bird flushes. Oh, yeah. And you can have four guns in the air, and 12 shots later, that bird's still flying. It's amazing how that happens. When people open up, <laughs> the thing keeps going, and away it goes. Yeah, and you're just, you're just like, okay, I guess we got to go find that one again. Yeah. Yeah, it's usually the people that, as we're leaving the, we used to call it the warming hut. It's more of a clubhouse now. It's a bigger, fancier thing. Mm-hmm. It's usually the guys that start off by telling me how good they are. Yeah, I break 25 out of 25 and all this, and then they miss 7 out of 8. Right. The guys that say, I've never done this before, so don't laugh at me, boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. They start knocking them down. So. Yeah. Yeah, you never know how to take those bird hunters because sure. they, some are some are hustling you a little bit, and some truly are not as good as they, they say. Yeah. Yeah, and it could be some of it, you know, you, you've got those guys you're saying to shoot 25 out of 25, well, they're in a stationary position. They they're they're saying when to say pull, mm-hmm. and they have a predictable pattern somewhat right. on where the you know what, if you're doing trap if it's gonna you may not know what angle it's coming out at, but you right. know roughly mm-hmm. here's gonna be your window. But when a bird comes up, you don't know which way it's gonna go. If it's yeah, you up, no out, behind you. If you got to spin, you right. got to plant your feet. So many different things. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned safety, like what are some of the things that you advise your hunters to do in, in terms of being safe in those situations, especially guys who have inexperience? Like what are your strategies or techniques to keep people? Yeah, well, it's not even my personal strat. Well, I do have, I guess, some personal strategies. But at Peaceable Hill, you know, safety always comes first. You're you're in the field with multiple people. You've got dogs. Uh, everybody usually has a firearm, so you have to be safe. So we start, I'll just run through how we do it. Uh, we have what we call safety video that everybody has to watch once a year. So if, so we have members and return guests, so they don't have to watch it every time they come. But mm-hmm. uh, it's 10 or 11 minutes, and we talk about general gun safety and so on, and then we also talk about specifics to Peaceable Hill. Uh in terms of how we run things and so everybody watches that video in that video we stress gun handling uh, how to you know watch your muzzle keep the safety on mm-hmm. we only allow two shells in the gun so whether it's a if it's an over and under side by side you know that that's easy but if guys that show up with pumps or semi-autos you know we ask that only two shells go in the gun uh, shot size six uh, is the minimum, so we don't allow the, the bigger shot, nor do you need it. Uh, you know, watching your footing, 
we call it the blue sky rule, so the you know we ask, it's, there's no way to police that other than asking people to not take shots on the ground is is a no no. Hunts over, mm -hmm. but not even a level shot. So we want the muzzle pointed up in the air and the blue sky rule. And most of the time, a bird will get up high enough so you can take a safe shot. So yeah, a lot of time those pheasants go up yeah, and so, like a helicopter. Yeah, so we stress that in the video they watch. And then when we go, uh, we start to begin the hunt walking in the field. I mention it again, especially the ground shot thing. Mm -hmm. You've got dogs in front of you. You know, I'm often in front of the guns trying to flush if I need to. Uh, so safety's number one, and then having fun is number two, and killing the birds. Right. Yeah. yeah. So as far as some of the dog stuff that you've, you've been through, so... Oh, and I should mention Blaze Orange. Blaze Orange, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, all, we, we mandate that people wear Blaze Orange. We prefer that you have two pieces on, a hat and a vest. I get a lot of guys that say, well, geez, I... I've got a vest, it's got orange, why do I need the hat? Well, when somebody, you know, your buddy on your side is swinging his shotgun, where is he swinging it? You know, at his shoulder about head height. So mm -hmm. you want that orange on so that your head's very visible. Yeah. Also, and knock on wood, we've never had an incident up there, and some of it's because of our protocols. Yeah, and as I, I've been to, a, you know, I currently work at a hunt preserve. I've worked at them before, and, I, and I've been to other ones, and it, yeah, actually the first one I've ever heard where somebody has a, a safety video, which I think is a, mm -hmm. a very good idea yeah. that uh, I think a lot of people should incorporate, at least especially in today's way of technology and how video is king with everything content's king right now, yeah. that it's so easy that even if you make a video, you can even email it a link to any any guest that like here, yeah. you know, whether yeah. you watch it on your own or mm -hmm. you're going to watch it when you get here, but you need to watch it. Yeah. Um, no quiz involved, obviously. But no you know. quiz, thank goodness. <laughs> but uh, to kind of touch on your dogs a little bit, I mean, you've been through about five dogs. So, as far as training, what uh, what have you found works, doesn't work? Is like because every, every dog's different. Every dog's got their own little personality. What have you found works best for you, or things that you haven't found, or some things that you didn't think would work would work with some of your dogs if you train them through the years. Well, I guess most importantly, I train my own dogs. Mm -hmm. I'm not a professional trainer, nor have I ever really worked with one. So I train my dogs my way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if that means it's right or wrong, but I've been fortunate through all the dogs that I've had that they have all been good hunters. They've all had very strong pointing instincts. So that they do on their own. So really... I just train the dogs for the basic commands. Uh, come is, you know, very important. You need the dog to come back to you. Mm -hmm. These are pointing dogs. Britneys tend to work close anyway. Uh, they tend to, but they can still get out their way. So you need to have recall with your dog. Use whatever command you want, mm -hmm. uh, but you need to be able to bring the dog back. You need to be able to stop the dog. Uh, you know, that's what... I guess technically they might call distraction training. Mm. Uh, if you live in a busy area and the dog starts to chase a cat across the street, you need to be able to say, you know, Some something, command, whatever yeah. the word is. I use stop. You know, a lot of people use other words. It doesn't matter. Yeah, whoa is a popular. Whoa is mm. popular. I yeah. use stop simply because a couple of my friends use whoa, and when we're out together and we're all yelling whoa and stop, dogs don't know who's yelling at what, <laughs> so I use different words. But um, heel just so that I can bring the dog back and mm -hmm. have him heal when we're walking into the field and so on. So, again, it's, it's just those basic commands is really all you need in the hunting they tend to do. I've never put a big emphasis on retrieving, uh, which I think is wrong. I probably should have the next dog that I get. You know, took me five dogs in 20 years to figure this out. Right. I probably should train them. You just like walking. They, yeah, I just, yeah, I do. Um, and, and they tend to retrieve on their own anyway frequently, but not all the time. But that's something that I should be working on, mm -hmm. and I will in the future. But well, that's kind of it for the training. Like I said, they kind of do their own thing. Um, I use a whistle. Uh, for my dogs, two whistles means come. So if I hit that whistle twice or even three times, they turn right around and come back. I've trained them that one whistle means stop. So if I just hit that whistle 
you know, loud one time, boom, they just lock up and stop. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've trained them. So I've trained them with the whistle and voice commands. And then third, I use hand commands, you know, simple in the sense that if the dog's coming at me and he's looking at me and I throw my right hand up, the dog will turn to the left because he goes the way I point my hand. So mm-hmm. if we've got a down bird or maybe we we've seen a bird run into a patch of cover and it's over on my right and I can call the dog over and he's coming at me, I can point that way mm-hmm. and the dog will go right into that. Now he'll, he'll go in the direction that I point. Now how do you actually train that? Like how have you found it works for you to train that? Like, I was in an open area. I did it in I do most of the training at home in the yard. The dog's away from me a ways. Mm-hmm. I call the dog towards me. When he's coming right at me, I just sort of throw my arm to the right and take a big step in that direction, and they naturally just, you see their head turn, they just go that way. Yeah. And they've learned that's what they do. Mm-hmm. So Now, with all your dogs, have they all been like, have like the same family, like same breed, like lineage? or they ha- Yes, they have been. I've got all my dogs from Quail Hollow Kennel, which is in southern New Jersey, Steve okay. Del Rossi. Um, he's well-known in the dog breeding business, with Brittany's mm-hmm. specifically. So that's I've had those dogs for years. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm not a breeder, so I don't necessarily know that the pedigree on each dog is right in the same lineage, but it's from the same kennel. So from the same kennel. So probably, I mean, he... They manage. They manage their their yeah. bloodline. Yeah. 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 That's good. Consistency is key. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, um, yeah, it's like if it's not broke, don't fix it. I've had good luck with his dogs, and so I'm sticking with them. Yeah. As far as uh, advice for people, like if they're hunters and shooting, like what do you recommend in terms of like when when dog goes on point, like how do you set them up for a shot, even though you really can't predict on how you're going to flush that bird. Yeah, you you can't predict. When the dog goes on point, frequently we have two hunters, sometimes three or four, but depending on the terrain and the cover, whether there's trees or not, uh, I just try to get people on either side of the dog so when the bird comes up, you know, somebody will get a shot at it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a judgment thing. It doesn't always work. Sometimes they fly straight back. Yeah. Um, and everybody's going to spin around. But, yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, telling people where to go, and you hope it works out. Yeah. 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 The blue sky rule is definitely, uh, that's when it comes into effect. Yeah. That's a good rule. Yeah. I know I kind of want to talk. We're here at turkey camp, so I kind of want to talk turkeys a little bit. So how long have you been guiding turkeys here? With Bob, I've guided maybe just five years. Five years? Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you've hunted and, turkeys yeah, everywhere. So <laughs> my turkey experience, uh, Vermont, the the turkeys were extirpated, I think. Is that how you pronounce I the think word? So. Yeah, the, the birds were gone. And in the late 1970s, Vermont brought in birds, I believe from New York State, I'm not sure, but they were released in Vermont, and the birds took right off and began... Uh, you know, expanding their areas. I think it was 1986 was the first bird hunt that had been held in Vermont, Mm -hmm. however long. And and a buddy of mine and I went out and did some scouting, and we were able to get a couple of birds that year. So that's the first year that I started to turkey hunt, and it's just, and I love it. Yeah, you caught the bug. Yeah, I caught the bug in a big way. Yeah. So all the places. So obviously you've hunted Vermont. Where else have you hunted? For turkeys, I've hunted New York, uh, Texas, and Colorado. Okay. I wanted to get a Merriam's and a Rio, which I have, and then all the rest are Easterns. Yeah. You just why, why not the Osceola? Florida might be next on the list. I don't know. <laughs> I'm having a little trouble with the expense of just shooting a turkey down there. Yeah, it's definitely I expensive down there. Yeah, I may. I may, but the Merriams and the Rio, I just, I wanted them quite, just the tail, I wanted the experience, but mm-hmm. the way, you know, the different coloration. Right. Yeah, so right. it looks good on the wall at home. Yeah. So, as far as what you've learned through the years, Turkey Gun, what are some of the strategies that you can help apply in, 
you know, whether you're calling on your own or if you're guiding things like that, what what have worked you found worked for you? Oh man, there, there's a there's a ton in that there, question. That's loaded. There's question. a ton, and it's like what happened with us this morning: the best laid plans, and then all of a sudden you get in the woods and things change because right. of what's going on. But um, one thing with me, I don't use flashlights in the woods. Um, I just especially early season. There's no leaves on the trees, and the birds can see so well. They're up they're up roosted so i tend to go in usually a little bit later uh in the morning i don't like to use the as i said i don't like to use a flashlight so i go in right at the crack of dawn you know you're you're always listening for a bird you know where are they roosted if, if you're lucky and you have time you've gone out the night before and so you have a sense of where to go but i hunt a lot of properties that I've hunted for years, the birds are there, they usually are somewhat predictable. Doesn't mean you can kill them. Um, but I don't use a flashlight, I get in the woods, I call softly with hen calls. Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the spring, that seems to be the most natural type of sound that they make, unless there's a gobbler right there and they can get excited and and be loud. But usually the, the hen calls are soft and so you keep your you're calling to a minimum and you keep it soft. I I guess I, I kinda go by what the what the gobblers are doing. If they're loud and gobbling and noisy and active, I'll be a little louder and a little noisy or a little more active with master attitude. Yeah, if they're quiet, I tend to be more quiet. I love to use a gobble call, mm -hmm. especially in the springtime. I use it in the fall too. But if if I'm in a place where I think it's safe to do that, as in there's not other people around, mm -hmm. um, I use gobble call a lot. I've been successful. You can call in hens that way. If there's hens around, there's usually gobblers, and gobblers will also respond. I've also gobbled at gobblers and had them turn around and run away as fast <laughs> as you can possibly yeah. go because that's what they do. Sometimes. Yeah, it's like it's like the it's like the deer grunt call. You can grunt at a buck and he might come in or he's going to tuck tail and run. Or here there's a beautiful elk and you bugle at him, he turns and runs. Yeah. That, that's just Same what thing. they do. Yeah. You yeah. challenge them, I guess, and they can they can that go. fight or flight and what kind of mood they're they're going to yeah, be in. Yeah. And like and then this morning we I guess we'll get into today later but we were very close to a roosted bird this morning and i've had success i have a uh, a hat you know baseball cap style hat that happens to be made of canvas and it's sort of floppy it's old and i can make a noise like that by flapping that hat that sounds just like turkey wings almost mm -hmm. and i've done that when i'm close to them I had birds just sail right in right come right off the branch and they come in because they hear the wings flapping um, so i've done that and in terms of setting up on a turkey, I don't like obstruction between me and the bird. Uh, that can turn them, or they don't, you know, if it's a downed log, let's say, they may not want to come around it. They'll stop on the other side of it. So I try to keep a clear path to where I think the bird is. If I'm sitting against a tree, I, always, I shoot off my right shoulder. I'm right-handed, so I always sit on the side of the tree so my left shoulder's pointed where I think the bird is. Uh, I've trained myself to be able to shoot off either shoulder, so I practice shooting with a 22 at home. I can shoot my rifles, my shotguns, my muzzle loaders off either shoulder. I'm comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times birds have come in silent on my right, or maybe they're not silent, but they're coming that way and you can't swing and you can't your body swing. around. I just move the shotgun over to the other shoulder and let them have it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, so a, that's good... a very good skill to have, and it's easy to learn. It's just the matter of just practice. practice yeah i mean that's definitely a good tip because there's two tips in there is about point you know when you're right-handed point your left shoulder that way you've got that natural swing motion to where the turkeys are coming in mm -hmm. and you're most comfortable but then if they yeah you know you practice weak shoulder and if they sneak yeah, in some other shoot, just, yeah yeah just swing the gun around and yeah that's yeah and and that's fairly recent for me let's say 15 years ago i remember i was at home deer hunting in November with the rifle and I was watching this little ravine up in back of our house where deer come through and all of a sudden I turn I look to my right there's a nice for Vermont there's a nice buck standing there like 40 yards away just feeding there's some oak trees up there mm -hmm. had his head down he was just feeding through I tried to swing my body around so I could shoot and he just picked his head up and he was gone 
if I I think if I had just moved my gun in my lap over to my left shoulder, I would have shot him. So, uh, so it was like a that was like a light bulb in my head. I said I just need to practice that. So I just practiced with a twenty two. It's easy now. Yeah, so it's second like, nature. It's yeah, <laughs> to retrain your eyes because especially if you're you know right eye dominant or left eye dominant to train with your other eye. Yeah, you have to train your eyes and you have to train your hands in the sense that most of the rifles I shoot, not all of them, but quite a few have the safety on the right side so you're just using different fingers the bolts on the wrong side mm -hmm. but if you know especially you just make a good first shot and right. you don't need it so. yeah true yeah true yeah so um kind of getting back to turkeys a little bit i i, I noticed that uh you only really want to run a box call you don't have you don't like slates or diaphragms no i do i have all that okay um i prefer a box call I, to me, it's just a little... I never really mastered the slate call, mm -hmm. for one thing. But I like using a box call. Mouth calls, I tend to use those a lot in the fall because you can be louder and the yelping and stuff. I mm -hmm. just, I, For me personally, I have a little more control with the box call. Uh, and I have a bunch of them. They sound... Sometimes I carry like three of them just so I can make different noises. Yeah. Um, I've also... On one of my box calls, I've put uh, the little screw-in eyelets in it, okay. and I put a, a shoelace through so I can tie it onto my left knee, if that makes sense. So if I'm sitting on the ground with my knees up, I can have the box call tied onto my leg so I can hold the gun in my left hand and work the call without it flopping all over the place. And then when the bird's in view, I just let go and I can shoot. Kind of like, so, a, like a leg holster almost. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's inventive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what else? If I, mean, I if I see a bird and he's coming, I shut up. You don't need to call anymore. Usually, if they hear you just one time, they know where you're at. So, when they're close like that, I just stop calling. I don't want them to pinpoint where I'm at. I've read that the that the eyesight on a turkey is like six or eight power. Mm -hmm. So if you look through a binocular in the woods, that's what. That's what turkey turkeys sees. are seeing. So once they're coming in, they're they're looking anyway. They're looking for a for a hen, mm -hmm. other turkeys. But I don't want them focusing on my area any more than they already are. So yeah, I kind of stop at that point, unless they hang up and start turning the other way or something. Then I'll give them a call. Give them a call. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's all reading it, reading the situation. Yeah, and um, so I guess we can kind of talk about what happened this morning since we're on turkeys. But our plan and how you got to yeah. adjust on the fly, like when things happen. Yeah, we did. It, it was a good morning. So we had Ava, your daughter, who mm -hmm. wants to get her first turkey in New York. And I, I went out Friday afternoon scouting, and and I didn't see birds where we were going, but I heard them late in the day, like 6 or 6.30. So I heard some hens. Uh, so we had a sense that the birds were going to be right there in the morning, and and the plan was to go to the end of this long field. It's almost half a mile, I guess, from where we parked uh, up to where we wanted to set up. We've got some decoys, and we were going to set up there. Uh, we park the car. We get out. Boom, there's a bird gobbling basically right where we parked. Yeah, yeah. That was on private property that we can't hunt. We heard uh, four or five other birds, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. You know, not real close, but on the way, walking oh, up walking in. Walking in, yeah. And we're we're on our way up to where we wanted to go, and then all of a sudden, a bird gobbles right there in front of us, like right over our heads, mm -hmm. like within a hundred yards. And there's Jim and Ava and myself, and I and we're right at the edge of this field. And I just remember thinking, you know, we're not going to be able to set up here, three of us, and do anything. These <laughs> birds have to see us. But somehow we pulled it off. We sat down, and. The bird gobbled a few more times. I mean, they were right there. Mm -hmm. We were all looking in the trees trying to see where they were, and then then they stopped for a minute or two, and all of a sudden I saw two come. Yeah, I saw two. I heard the wings down. flap, and, yeah. yeah, they sailed through the woods. Or not, well, just off the edge of the field, but across the field into this cornfield out of sight. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of a waiting game. There was nothing. Yeah, no they gobbles. just shut up. Yeah, they shut up. I called a few times. They shut up. There's just nothing. Yeah, what, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Probably maybe. Only 20, so, almost a half hour. So I, I was in back of the two of you a little bit, and 
you know, after 20 minutes, I, I wanted to see what's going on, so I had a tree right there. So I was able to stand up, and I look, and a, r directly across the field from us, maybe it's 150 yards wide, there was a full fan right there. You know, I just saw the black spot as soon as I stood up, and there were three hens and a mature bird right there. The hens were going up the hill and away from us, and that, that gobbler followed those hens you know, up and away, but we'd seen two birds come out of the trees and called a little more and looked, and we just didn't see them. So now we're maybe in, I don't know if it's an hour, 45 minutes into it, and we heard another gobble down in the woods a couple hundred yards away, so mm -hmm. I thought, well, we'll just go down there and work that bird. So three of us stand up, take about three, four steps towards there look into the field there's a bunch of red heads looking right at us 75 yards out and i just kind of put my hand up for everybody to stop i think you you saw them too i yeah. think and uh, we all just stood there and then i saw the heads go down i thought well that's that's that they're they're leaving and then i see one come up again and i said oh, they're right there so we crawled on our hands and knees up to the edge of the field and Started calling, and what, 20 minutes later, they came down. They came in. They were mm -hmm. three jakes, yeah, smaller jakes. They just had little, what, the visible beards were two inches long yeah. or something. So you put an inch of feathers in there. So they're just three-inch birds. Ava's looking for a big bird. She decided not to shoot, which is cool. And we let them move past us. And uh, that was that. It was quiet then. We... we went down to the end of the field set up our decoys and called and waited and we did hear another bird gobbling it was quite a ways off eventually we worked over that way and just never heard them and kind of hunted till noon and that was it and that was they it. just and never lit up again but yeah that's just, and that's just turkey hunting sometimes where that's turkey hunting yeah but the good news is we what we saw three jakes we saw the mature bird we heard another bird gobble in the woods mm-hmm the bird that gobbled way off could have been those jakes going that you know who knows yeah. what that was but we had action there's some hens so uh, we'll be right up there again tomorrow morning yeah it's definitely gonna be a try good plan to make it happen yeah 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 we know the birds are there so yeah, they're, they're not going to be far away yeah and, and that's and that's half the battle when you're turkey hunting is like if if you kind of have a, a decent idea where to start in the morning that's going to be half the battle mm -hmm. yeah and we didn't spook those birds no you know we, we'd let the, the jakes we just let them walk off the other mm -hmm. bird went up the hill so yeah. yeah even with us crawling around and me me maneuvering the camera and yeah getting set up and yeah they were fine yeah yeah so yeah we did good so i know i want to kind of cover a couple more things because you've you've hunted really haven't guided other species but i know you've done a lot of hunting and i know you've got some cool stories and things that you may have learned or some experiences that you've you know definitely i think worth sharing i think one is the the your your mountain goat story that you kind of oh told yeah me. that was yeah so i maybe it's when i turned 50 years old i wanted to do something special for myself that's always good right right so, uh some i don't remember how it came about but i decided i was going to go do a mountain goat hunt so i booked a hunt with a guy in british columbia just did the research on the you know google search and all yeah. that and how I ended up with Eric Hatch, I don't know, but uh, Tatla Lake was place to go, so that was all cool. So it it didn't start out good. Ended up okay. <laughs> Actually, it ended up great. But uh, when I booked the hunt, I believe it was towards the end of September, which is a little bit early for mountain goat, in that they get the coats get better later in the year, but. Um, I wanted to go a little bit earlier. That's the way the schedule was. I don't. I don't remember. But mm -hmm. um, about a week before I went, maybe not even a week, a few days before I was set to fly out there, uh, Eric called and said that there, they'd had a whole bunch of snow up where we were going, uh, like a whole bunch, two, three feet of snow, and we couldn't even get up to the camp where we had to be to find these goats and. So he basically said, well, it's up to you, he said, but my advice is just to come out here, and I think we can make it happen later in the week, but if we don't, you can come back next year. I won't charge you for it, and we'll 
we'll do it then, but why don't you come out? I'm right. like, yeah, I've already bought the ticket, so. Yeah, you know, worth all, a shot. Yeah, I'm all psyched up. I'm going to go. Um, so to get to where he lives, which, which again is Tatla Lake, um, as I recall, the flight goes Chicago, Vancouver, uh, overnight in Vancouver, then you fly to Williams Lake, which is up in British Columbia. Williams Lake's a pretty good-sized city. I don't know how big it is, 15,000 mm -hmm. people or something. You know, it's a city. It has a hardware store. I think it has a Walmart, so it's that big. <laughs> so Tatla Lake is four hours or five hours drive where these people live. So when they go to Williams Lake, they buy everything that they need because they probably only go there once a month because it's four or five-hour drive. But that's where you get your food, you know, hardware, whatever you need. Um, Eric's son came and met me at the airport and picked me up and he had already been to the hardware store and as I recall he had some big uh, some of those 4 by 8 metal uh, like roofing you know panels okay. sheets of metal in the back of the truck and and I had a you know big bag I threw that on top of this and on top of the, the roofing panels and I got in the truck and I had another bag gun case Went in the truck and off we went for Williams Lake. So we drive five hours, get over to Williams Lake, and there's a little store there. He stopped and called home. Now this is before the before cell phones, or maybe they just didn't have service up there. I don't recall. Right. But calls home just to, one more time. Is there anything you need at the store? Because from there it's still another 30 miles up to the cabin. And I look in the back of the truck. My bag's not there. Oh, no. The one that I'd put in the back of the truck, which has, like, my boots and my ammo, you know, and all this stuff. Right. And so I just, oh, I said, oh, you put my bag in the back seat. He's like, what bag? I'm like, well, the one, oh, no, I didn't do that. Is it not back there? I'm like, yeah, it's not there. So somehow the bag came out of the back of the truck between Williams Lake and Tatla Lake. <laughs> so, you know, I started to get, like, a little excited, and then what are you going to do so we drove up to the house and it's late in the day now and we get in there and eric's like is everything okay your wife just called and i'm like yeah i mean other than i don't have my bag so what happened was the bag somehow flew out of the back of the truck between tatla lake and williams lake uh -huh. and somebody found the luckily it was a good samaritan type they found, found the, the bag, bag opened it i had my name and everything in the bag mm -hmm. and they called my house now this is up in british columbia in right. canada yeah you know Lori hasn't heard from me all day <laughs> they called and said hey i found a bag on the side of the road is this yours she's like oh it's my husband's where where is he and we don't know but his bag's on the side of the road <laughs> so anyway the the person that found it dropped it off at a R Royal uh, RCP, they call them. Okay. Canadian Police, the police. Station, mm -hmm. which was almost all the way back to Williams Lake. So Eli had to get in the truck, drive all the way down there, get the bag, and come back. So started off like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then we still had the snow up in the mountains. So we deer hunted or moose hunted or something. Shot a bear. I don't remember. Did something for a few days. And then we finally got to the point where we could get up to camp and we could see trails. You know, you're you're glassing you know up to a mile away i'm trying to find a mountain goat mm -hmm. which is white On and snow. there's snow <laughs> yeah so we could just see where they'd walked you'd see trails around up in the snow we knew they were there we couldn't find a goat a couple of days and then uh maybe the third day in we climbed up to the top of this mountain right outside of camp i mean it's quite a ways probably a mile up there we get up on top of this and we could look over there's a flat mountain which was another mile away but up on top of that the snow had mount when it's flat it's like a plateau on top steep mm -hmm. all around it but flat on top as i recall and i mean relatively flat but i remember looking over there and we could see the white dots from a mile away so there were goats there a lot like 40 or 50 they were just all on top of this maybe because the mm -hmm. snow melted right there but so now we climb back down to camp, and so the plan in the morning is Eric's going to ride, we're going to take horses, but he's going to take Eli and I over to the base of this big plateau mountain. We're going to be left there, and we're going to climb up on top and get a goat and come down, and he's going to meet us at dark down below. So that's what we do, and we 
we start hiking up, you know, trying to get up on top, and there's just a jumble of rocks all around. We ended up going west quite a ways, and then we see the chute going up. You can see the top. Maybe it's 300 yards up there or something. But mm-hmm. So we're just going to go up the chute. So we start going up through it, and it's getting steeper and steeper and rockier. And you know, We each have packs on. I've got a rifle. And when I... When it first started to get a little difficult, I remember that you know he'll, he would kick a rock and it would come past me. And I'm, <laughs> I'm looking up like at his feet, thinking you know this is getting a little hairy going up through here. And these rocks, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to get hit with one. Not big rocks, but they're still. I mean, they're now is this up. like so steep that it's like almost like you're climbing a ladder, like that steep? Like you got your hand in front of you, like bracing yourself, like that steep? Well, eventually, it got. To, yeah, we're going up, and then. You know, now it, it's steep enough now that I can actually feel the pack and the gun, like, pulling me back. Mm. So Eli would get up, so he's got this big piece of rope with him, which I don't think we had it for the reason we used it, but we had this piece of rope, so we start, like, tying off the packs, and he'd pull them up, and then he'd move up 15 feet and pull them up, and I, you know, we kept shifting everything up, and I just remember looking down the chute at one point, knowing that we couldn't go back down we had to go up and that man if you lost your footing up there you'd really be in a bad way Mm -hmm. for a bunch of reasons but you'd be going down on these rocks it was a long way but but anyway we ended up making it to the top and there the goats were right there and walk now we're trying to find a billy there's all there's mamas and babies as he was saying a lot Mm -hmm. of nannies and little ones running around and we just kept sort of moving through the goats, and we finally got one, which, I, as I recall, I shot it. It was later in the afternoon, maybe 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Now, we're quite a ways north, and it was September, so it stayed late, or it stayed light. Later in the day, we get, the, we get it all taken care of. We had to skin it out. You have to take the meat out, so we had a pack with meat. We had the hide, you know, the head and horns and everything, and... You know, now it's like getting dark. We have to get off this this mountain, and you know it's flat on top. So we kind of went the direction we had to go, and then you have to go down through the woods. But now we're going in the dark through these rocks and just crawling around. And anyway, we got back to where we got dropped off that morning, the next morning. Mm. And then Eric had come to pick us up the night before. Of course, we didn't get out. He doesn't know what's going on, so he waited there. So he stayed with the horses all night, and and we got down there the next morning. And and the one thing I remember is as we were going through the wood. Now it's like midnight or something, mm-hmm. one in the morning. We're still walking, and now you didn't the, take this like you, so. You went up the steep route, and when you walked out, you guys took a whole new a whole, path. whole new way. We we knew we couldn't go down there, so we mm-hmm. had to go to the east. Uh, and and then down and around, so we had to take the long way around to get down to where we had to meet mm-hmm. uh, his father. And anyway, I, I just remember at one point Eli says to me, "If I yell or something, he says you just drop your pack and you we're carrying counter salt because of the bears. Mm-hmm. Just drop your pack and get your back up against a tree. You know, hopefully they'll <laughs> go for the pack and not for us." And I'm like, "Man, this is just great." You know? so, <laughs> luckily, that never happened. Right. Um, there were bears around. I remember seeing tracks. We measured one with the claws. I can't remember. 14 inches or something, you know, big. Yeah, that's big. Big bears up there. Um, we didn't see one. Uh, one of those. Anyway, we got down, and so it all ended up good, but it was, I think it was 31 hours from when we left camp to when we got back. That's a long, a long time. That's yeah. a long hunt. That's the longest I've ever been out like that. So Yeah. Yeah. So like you didn't sleep at all. You guys just slowly walked, walked we, out. We kept moving. Kept yeah. moving. Yeah. I think if if we we just figured that uh, Eric would be waiting down there with the horses, we didn't know how long it was going to take. So we we didn't want to just like we could have stayed out. Mm-hmm. You know, we were fine. We we had emergency supplies to spend the night, but we just kept thinking we got to get down there because he's probably standing there waiting standing for there us, waiting. which he was, but it just took us that long to get out. Right. Yeah. So. So how did you like fight through the fatigue of that of of being out for so long? I don't remember that being. I was probably scared. I don't know. Scared, <laughs> I don't scared. remember that being an issue. It wasn't strenuous. It was just 
I mean, just long. Most of the time we're going down. Yeah, it was just it, long, it was, and the thought of a bear having to, you know. Yeah, no, it was more just difficult because it's at night. Luckily, we had good flashlights and all the the light held up. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it was just long. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. And I was younger, so it was a little bit easier. A little bit easier. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because yeah, so. I know from there's been times where I'll, I'll get I'll get back to elk camp from after somebody shoots a bull. Oh. Right, right at dark, and then you gotta yeah. skin it out, and then ten go. or eleven at night you get out of there. Yeah, and yeah. then yeah, and then uh, you get an hour and a half, two hour ride to the you know yeah on the horseback yeah. back to the cabin, and you know yeah. you're getting back, and by the time you take care of the horse, it's one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And then there's still guys that haven't killed, so you got to get up at four thirty and go out again. That's right. Yeah, yep, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's all part of that guide life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So I know you're a big elk hunter. So do you got any quick uh? What's your favorite like elk story that you've experienced? My favorite one, or a favorite one, maybe not the favorite one, or a good one oh. that you like to tell. Like if, if somebody if somebody walks up and says, "Hey, what what you know, what do you remember most about elk hunting? What, yeah, what are you going to tell I, them?" I've been fortunate. I've done a lot of elk hunting. I've killed some elk. Uh, I guess one of the best hunts I had, in a sense, was I like I'm in now. I do archery or muzzleloader. Okay. In Colorado, mainly be, I like using those weapons, but and I like being close. I'm not much of a rifle guy, but I also like hunting in September, which is when those seasons are, because the weather's just so nice mm-hmm. out there. And that's they're rutting, so you tend to get in, you know, a little more, more active, more bugles, you get yeah, more personal but, interaction. Yep, you do. Uh, but I just, I clearly remember this one time I was up in the White River part of the state. Uh, and in the afternoon, we'd gone up this one drainage we rode horses up in, and there was nothing going on. It's just blue sky, sunny day, you know, 65 degrees, you know, just nothing, nothing, nothing. And then right about sunset, I mean, that, the mountain just lit with bugles. I mean, just everywhere. You know, we don't know. Who knows how many elk there were. But mm, just, just a bugle fest. Just everywhere. Yeah, bugle fest you know, all over the place. And we never got into them. You know, they were just, they were around. It's getting dark. We didn't get into them. But so I'll come back up here in the morning because they're going to be around, you know, mm-hmm. someplace. So so that that's what we did. And uh, in the morning we rode up in, in the dark, up this drainage, up, 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 you know, maybe a mile up in there. And just here, it's same thing, bugle fest again. You know, we're mm-hmm. just hearing bulls all around us tie off the horses uh and at that point it's like which elk are you going to go for you know they're they're just around and remember we went about 50 yards from the horse and there was elk coming right up through it was a cow but it just walked right in front of us like five yards away i remember thinking i could just reach out with the arrow and poke (laughs) it if i wanted it's just oblivious to us being there because the cow was in heat i guess Mm -hmm. figured there'd be a bull right in back of her and there wasn't so we kept moving down, down, down this trail, and then, you know, two bugles down below us, and just those nice quaky woods when you see a picture of the west, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of open down below, and the quaky aspen trees, mm-hmm. and the leaves are yellow, and the bulls down there just roaring and stuff. We call nothing. Bull won't come up. He's just down there doing whatever, raking his antlers on a mm-hmm. tree you hear all this going on for half an hour and and then i heard what i'd remember in my head it sounded like a lion like <sighs> a roar like a lion and i looked to my left and there's a bull just running right in at us just bawling it doesn't even sound like an elk i mean uh. this thing's just like growling and i just came right to full draw and I remember he stopped and I had a rangefinder. I just popped it on him 42 yards and shot and just hit him perfect. He ran two steps forward, three steps the other way, and just collapsed. <laughs> it was perfect. You know, your heart's beating like 100 miles oh, yeah. an hour, and, yeah, just boom. It's funny. Plant. It's yeah. funny how fast they can run in like that and make noises. Oh. It, it's funny that you say that, that roar that happened to you one time. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was because the where we hunt is actually a cattle ranch as well, and in the first part of the season, the cattle are still there on the ranch. And so where we were moving through, I knew elk were moving through there, but also that's where the cattle were. And I wasn't expecting to hit elk right amongst all the cattle. 
and we're walking through and I hear something like a roar. And I'm like, I stopped my hunter. I'm like, what was that? I was like, did you hear that? They're like, I don't know. And then I took like three more steps and I just like pause and look over and there's this massive six by six standing like 50 yards away. Yeah. Totally staring at us. And my hunter, he was from Texas and he was a straight whitetail hunter. So he locked up thinking that, that, okay, if I just act like a, a stone, this thing's going to ignore us. But like, no, it already saw us. And I'm like, yeah. I'm telling him like, get your rifle off your shoulder, get your rifle off your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, his <laughs> yeah. rifle still on his shoulder. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm next to him, like reaching around him, like lifting it off. And he's like holding it even tighter to his shoulder. I'm like, yeah. no, get it off your shoulder, get off your shoulder. I was like, yeah. shoot this thing. And he's like, no, just wait, just wait, just wait. He says, I'm like, no, you need to shoot this thing now. Yeah. And, uh, but it, yeah, he ended up, he ended up leaving his gun on his shoulder and the thing turned and just gone. It, it stared at us for a good, like 45 seconds. And like, that's, it was plenty enough time for him to, mm-hmm. you know, cause elk will do that. They'll, they won't, they won't kind of like bust and go back to things like a whitetail does. They'll, they'll stare at you and be very curious and give you 30, 45 seconds to, to make a move. Mm-hmm. And then they'll bust. And when they bust, they're apt to go a mile. Oh, yeah. They don't run like 200 yards like a whitetail yeah. does. They just go and they keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah whitetail will bound off and then stop and look back. Yeah. But it's funny, we were talking today about turkey calls. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't remember exactly how it went, but you said, or maybe I said, geez, it sounds like a big bird. You know, mm-hmm. you hear this loud gobble and you think it's a big bird. And I, I remember telling you that the loudest gobble and the biggest baddest turkey i ever heard in the woods came walking in on me i saw the red head come in and i i basically shot too quick but i shot walked over to it it was jake has this little two inch beard on it but Mm -hmm. it was goblin i thought it was biggest thing that ever walked in the woods of vermont and elk are like that i've heard elk bugle that i know it's a big bull and then it turns out to be a spike mm-hmm. and then i've heard these awful little squeal sort of things and it's a big bull so you at least for me i can't tell the size of an animal based on mm-hmm. you know the gobble or the bugle so. yeah i mean that, and that's the thing is a lot of times whether i think whether you're turkey hunting or even elk hunting you know when you got animals that are vocal like that you know a lot of times we will talk about how just because you hear a bugle doesn't mean that the big one's not there. Like you can sit there and assume that you hear the squeaky bugle and like, Oh, that's just some spike raghorn. But like, okay. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there's not a big one standing next to him. Right. And same thing with turkeys. Like you can, you can assume that like this little broken up gobble just doesn't sound very strong. that doesn't mean that there's a big Tom with him and he's just being quiet. Yeah. Or it doesn't. Yeah. If you hear a little weird gobble, doesn't yeah. mean it's not a big one. It's right. just the way they are. So. Yeah. Every, every and mm-hmm. that's the thing is they're all unique. They all got their own sound. I, I mean, yeah, You've hunted enough turkeys. I've hunted a lot of turkeys, and although like the 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 cadence of the gobble gobble, but volume and it's all roughly the same. But they're all completely different. Especially mm-hmm. elk, elk bugles. They're all different tone, different pitch. Yeah, they got their own thing. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and turkeys are like that. I I make a lot of mistakes calling, and you know you hear an odd sound, but I've heard turkeys made sound. I can't even tell you what they are, but they do all kinds of things so if you make a noise on your box call or with your mouth call that you just know is wrong you know just keep calling work in the good calls and bird will just ignore it because mm-hmm. they've heard all whatever you're doing they've heard it before and um you know you can still call them in just keep at it man yeah. so to wrap things up here as far as kind of just getting back into the guide stuff and guide life like for somebody who wanted to consider being a guide or thinks about ever being a guide, like what advice would you give them? I can't say don't do it. (laughs) No, so I'm not going to say that, of course. But it's not about the money. You just love doing it. That's what it is. It's probably 80% customer service and 20%, I don't know if that's true, 20% hunting. It's not exactly like that. But so much of it is just how you treat the people that you are with. You're with them for quite a while. And you have to realize for most guys that you're guiding, they're spending a lot of money. Sometimes it's their vacation and they just want to have a good time. You know, often it's not a matter of do they kill something or do they not kill something or how big it is. You know, they want to be treated right and, and, uh, you know, obey the law and just do the right thing and, and give them a good hunt. You know, you should have a knowledge of, 
of the animal that you're hunting and, and the ground that you're hunting on, but, you know, just give it 110%. But you have to really like doing it because uh, it's just one of those things that if you don't enjoy it, they'll sense that and then they won't have as much fun. So Yeah. yeah. You're definitely, I always say that you're the thermometer on the hunt. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. well, hey, this has been great, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time out of this evening. I know we got to get up early, so we'll probably wrap things up here. Yeah. So, thanks 3 for coming. 3:30 is not far away. No. That's right. Okay. Thanks, thanks Jim. Thank you.